running an economic history and the spread of, of cotton growing. Uh, I mentioned that uh, there is no evidence that I've found that cotton was grown in Iran prior to the, um, the Arab conquest. This is, uh, this could be, you know, turn out to be inaccurate because we simply don't have um, a lot of information about the economic history of Iran prior to the Arab conquest. But uh, there are two places where cotton was grown. Uh, one of them was in the uh, area beyond the Oxus River, uh, Transoxania, or also known as uh, Sok. Um, and there, uh, cotton is mentioned in uh, Sogdian letters, and it has shown up in some archaeological uh, sites, and it is mentioned in some Chinese sources. What appears to be the case is that since cotton originates in China as a uh, cultivated uh, plant, at least the kind of cotton that we're talking about, uh, it appears that the trade route that went uh, from India to northern Afghanistan and then across to China, that is to say the Silk Road, was also the route for the dissemination of cotton into uh, Central Asia. However, the quantity of cotton that shows up is, uh, is extraordinarily small, so that when in excavations you occasionally find a scrap of cotton cloth, but compared with silk or wool or felt or other fabrics, it's, uh, it's fairly unimportant. So one of the possibilities <coughs> would be that cotton cultivation spread westward from Central Asia into Iran. <coughs> the other possibility relates, as I've mentioned, to Yemen, where cotton was grown in significant quantity uh, prior to Islam. Uh, this is attested to... <coughs> Uh, in uh, stories about uh, the prophet Muhammad, uh, the, when he died, the, uh, the uh, burial wrap uh, that was placed on his body was manufactured in Yemen, and it was made of cotton. And there are other references to Yemeni cotton. Uh, so the, you have two possibilities. One is that cotton spread into Iran from the east, uh, from uh, salt, and the other is that it spread into Iran from the west with the movement there of uh, Arab troops from Yemen. The best uh, indicator, I think, uh, of which was the proper direction, um, well, there are two indicators. One of them is, uh, is terminological. That is to say, the, um, there's a word that shows up for cotton cloth, apparently a fairly thick cotton cloth, um, 
uh, that uh, became a, an important product in northeastern Iran, Kerbas. Uh, and Kerbas is from a Sanskrit word and is the source of various words in Central Asia, uh, which indicates an Indian source. However, uh, the word Kerbas does not, seemingly does not appear uh, in Western Iran. Um, it it's a specifically refers to cloth made in northeastern Iran bordering Central Asia. And the the people who who produce this cloth bear the surname uh, of quite a common surname, uh, Karabisi. Uh, this is uh, different from the two words for cotton employment that I mentioned last time, katan and bezaz, uh, and I'm not in, including them in the same, uh, the same index of things because it's only in the Northeast that this shows up as a, uh, as a personal uh, occupational name. And what it does, um, the form of the word uh, is a plural uh, that's specifically an Arabic type of plural, not a Persian type of plural. So kerbas in Arabic uh, turns into the plural kerabis, meaning several pieces of cotton cloth. Uh, there was no Arabic spoken in northeastern Iran before the Arab conquest, so it suggests that the, uh, to the degree that there was a connection eastward into Central Asia, <coughs> indicated by the word kerbas, it was restricted to northeastern Iran, and it was only after Arabic had become uh, a known language um, in that region. So essentially, terminologically, it appears that the western Iran is where the cotton cultivation began. And this coincides pretty well with place names that, uh, or rather occupational names that are for cotton growing and cotton cloth manufacture that are more common in Western Iran uh, than they are in Eastern Iran prior to the uh, prior to the 900s. In other words, in the 800s, you have a lot of cotton growers apparently in Western Iran, and it's not until the 900s that they seem to show up uh, in similar numbers in Eastern Iran. Uh, this, um, these are the two arguments for uh, seeing the uh, spread of cotton going from west to east rather than east to west and for uh, thereby, thereby uh, looking at the Yemeni Arabs as being the source. In very specific terms, the one text that we have that, uh, that yields the most important information is a uh, history of the city of Qom, uh, which is located south of Tehran in western Iran, uh, and is uh, today the primary Shiite educational center in Iran, and a, a quite an important city. At the time of the Arab invasion, Qom doesn't appear to have been a city. It appears to have been a, cult of a, a an agricultural area without an urban center. And in a uh, 
medieval work originally composed in Arabic but surviving now only in a much later Persian translation called The History of Qom. Um, uh, the history is uh, very, very strongly uh, bound up in the actions of, of certain Yemeni Arab families, elite Yemeni Arab families who were um, uh, who developed the city uh, to some degree in competition with the local Iranian uh, landowners. In that uh, history, um, I wasn't going to get into this, but I think I have to. Uh, most of the book has disappeared, uh, but of the there were 21 chapters originally, and only five survived. Um, but among those that have survived is a chapter that uh, that deals with taxation. <clears throat> what it what it contains is material that is drawn from eight different tax registers uh, dating from almost exactly 800 to 900 uh, AD. The tax registers are not presented systematically. Uh, it doesn't explain you know, what sort of uh, criteria were used to include things, but they're used as a source of uh, lists of place names so that you have uh, taxable locations that are grouped according to, uh, to district names. Uh, those taxable locations uh, are very difficult to work with, both because of uncertain spellings and because the district names seem to overlap and because some of the tax registers are drawn upon more heavily than others. It's the earliest tax registers that seem to be drawn upon most heavily. And we don't know why these places were listed. Basically what you have is the name of a district, what apparently is a district, um, and then a, a group of village names or a group of names of taxable entities. Um, there are sometimes the same district will be listed more than once and therefore you have to try and correct for repetitions and so on. But once you massage this uh, collection of place names uh, as much as you can to make sure that you're getting discreetly different taxable entities, you come out with a list of something like 1,200 uh, village names or 1,200 names of taxable uh, districts. Some of them are probably farms rather than uh, formal villages. Uh, that number is close in, in general magnitude to the number of villages that, uh, that would exist uh, in the 20th century for the same part of Iran. Uh, we have a gazetteer from the 1950s that contains the, uh, a listing for every village in Iran. It's eight volumes long. It was um, just a basic record of all of the villages in Iran uh, before the spread of modern uh, agriculture. Um, and 
so you so you can see that the density of population of circa 800 to 900 seems to be in the same um, uh, order of magnitude as the density of uh, of population uh, in the 1950s. Uh, I've also looked at a different area of northeastern Iran from this point of view of density of occupation. Uh, and again, found very similar um, counts of village names for northeastern Iran uh, for the 1950s and for the, uh, you know, for the 9th and 10th centuries. So Iran seems to have been uh, uh, extensively exploited agriculturally. In the modern list uh, of the uh, the villages that exist in this area in the uh, 1950s, uh, somewhere around 35% of them have a name that fits a certain pattern of name. Uh, and this is a name ending in the syllables Abad. So you, and then in front of the name, you have usually a personal name. Muhammad, Ahmed, Hussein, Ali, uh, something like that. Uh, in Arabic, uh, there's a word that means so-and-so. Uh, and so I call these, these villages Fulanabad villages, because Fulan it simply means so-and-so in Arabic. So it's a personal name followed by the suffix abad. Uh, there are various other areas uh, in the world affected by Persian language practices that have cities with the ending in the syllable abad, but normally those are capital cities that have been built by some ruler. You have a number of them in India, Hyderabad, for example, Ahmadabad. Um, in Iran, uh, there aren't any big cities named Abad. Um, maybe two or three you know, middle-sized cities historically, but basically this was used almost entirely uh, for the name of a village. Uh, unlike the practice, let's say, in the United States, where within a given district, a given state, you normally would not have two, uh, two towns with the same name. Uh, you had lots of towns with the same name uh, in Iran. Uh, so that in the central district where Qom is located, there were something like 40 Hosseinabads. Um, and if you came from Hosseinabad, you had to explain where that was. So the the question that arises is, where do these first names come from? Uh, and what does the suffix abad mean? Uh, the word ab in Persian means water. And so there is a folk etymology that says that this um, uh, somehow abad is related to irrigation. Etymologically, uh, modern scholarship would not agree with that. They would say that this means a, means a built area, uh, but not necessarily an irrigated area. 
Nevertheless, even in the 19th century, there were Persian dictionaries that said it had something to do with water. So as a folk etymology, it may have been influential, even if it's not the correct derivation of the word. Of those villages in the 1950s that were named Abad, over 70% of them in the central district of Iran, around the city of Qom, were irrigated by underground canals, by canals. For those villages that had another sort of name, that were not Fulan Abad villages, the percentage that were irrigated by canals was less than half the percentage of those that were named Fulan Abad. So there appears to be a correlation between naming a village with this type of name and having the farming in the village irrigated by underground canals. In the list of 1,200 villages between 800 and 900 AD, there's about 25% of them are named Abad, Fulan Abad. And what I am proposing is that these villages were irrigated by underground canals. So that by the early 800s, you had something on the order of a quarter of the tax-producing entities were being irrigated by underground canals. Now the question is, of course, is this simply a continuation of what had happened before the Arab conquest? And here I would make the argument that no, it is not. Because if you look at all of the first names that you have, that show up as the first part of a village name, in the year 800 or so, because that's the preponderance of these village names, 80% of the villages called Fulan Abad had a Fulan part that was a Muslim name. So Mohammed, Ahmed, Hossein, so forth and so on, showed up in almost all of the village names. Only one Zoroastrian name appears in the top dozen or so names. And this is why I associate the digging of Qanats and the creation of these Fulan Abad villages primarily with Muslims, who in the year 800 would still have been predominantly Arabs, although converts to Islam among the local population were beginning to be noticeable by the early 800s. But they still were, most of Iran still was non-Muslim. So it appears that the Arabs came and built these villages. 
based on uh, underground canals. And as I've said, you, if you once you do that, the economy of things uh, pretty much requires that you use the canal for summer crops uh, to make use of the fact that unlike other uh, villages that are suitable for dry farming, uh, you have water throughout uh, throughout the year. Uh, there is another indicator that this was done uh, in the early 800s, and that is that among the Muslim names that are used for these villages, there's a fairly high percentage of them that are names drawn from uh, the overlap between the Quran and the Bible. So you have uh, names like Solomon and Moses, uh, um, uh, Ishmael in their Arabic forms. Right? So you'll have uh, Moses Abad would be Musa Abad, uh, Solomon Abad would be Suleiman Abad, uh, Ishmael Abad would be Ismail Abad, and so forth. Uh, looking at a very large sample of uh, of names of people who convert to Islam, it appears that these names from the Bible are much more common in the very early stages of conversion than they become later on. Uh, my hypothesis on this is that when people became Muslims, uh, they found it convenient to have a name that wasn't uh, absolutely, unequivocally a Muslim name. It could be Jewish, it could be Christian, uh, it could be Muslim. Uh, it normally could not be Zoroastrian. There's almost no overlap between uh, Zoroastrian names and, uh, and Muslim names. But once the pace of conversion to Islam accelerates, these names from the Bible tend to disappear and be replaced by uh, very, very obvious Muslim names. So by, let us say, the early 900s, um, we have families who have like five sons all named Muhammad. Uh, or, you know, Muhammad, Ahmed, Ali, Hussein, Hassan. I mean, it's uh, the biblical names uh, drop out because at a certain point, uh, people wanted to make it clear that they were Muslims and they wanted to dissociate themselves from the Christian and the Jewish minorities uh, that existed in small numbers uh, in Iran. Uh, there are a number of other uh, really arcane uh, ways of counting these village names that all seem to converge on the idea that the uh, that Arabs and Muslims are the source of um, of a new agricultural uh, economy based upon uh, irrigation, and that the number of villages irrigated exclusively by underground canals before the Arab conquest was probably very small. There's a further uh, consideration, and that is that uh, in Iran in the 20th century, there's a very high correlation geographically 
between parts of the country that use underground canals for irrigation and parts of the country that organize labor in the village according to uh, labor teams. Uh, there are various words for these uh, uh, labor teams. Uh, Bonnet is perhaps the most common one. They're very seldom discussed. There's one Iranian geographer who has uh, written extensively about these labor teams. What they seem to, to amount to is that uh, people in a village are grouped into, with a number of other men, into a labor team, and the labor team has a, uh, a fixed uh, share of the produce of the village uh, as their uh, compensation for the labor that they, that they provide. Uh, this, there's a lot of division of things in villages in Iran in traditional law. Uh, each village is divided into six units called dong, and people will buy and sell six of villages. So we have bills of sale for, you know, somebody bought one dong of such and such a village or two dongs. Uh, but that doesn't appear to be the same thing as the bonnet. Um, what I think happened uh, was the uh, that when these new villages were were made, uh, there was a question of where would you get the labor force to uh, cultivate the land, uh, the desert land that you were bringing into productivity. Because you, you have basically a problem. You have a village that's going, that's going to come into being in a desert where nothing grows. Uh, the village cannot come into being prior to the completion of the underground canal uh, because uh, there's, you can't grow anything. Uh, but the digging of the canal costs money and involves labor. The building of the village uh, costs money and involves labor. So the question is, where did the laborers come from to, uh, to build the village, uh, dig the underground canal, and plant the first crop? And my surmise is that the, uh, the Arab and, and Muslim convert entrepreneurs who undertook these villages uh, that this was part of the initial investment. <clears throat> they paid for the digging of the canal, <clears throat> and they paid for the building of the village. And then, you know, you had a growing season, and then finally the land would produce uh, would produce a crop. But that raised the question of where did the labor come from? Because most of the labor in rural Iran was made up of Iranians who were already employed uh, in the existing agricultural um, uh, yeah, enterprise. The labor team method, I would suggest, originated as a way of recruiting people to come to these new villages. Um, and that the uh, they had to give a fixed share of the crop to these laborers to guarantee them that they would have a share in the produce of the villages, whereas villages that were irrigated by rainfall 
or by snow runoff or something like that, would have a more organic and traditional uh, sort of land uh, land exploitation by the villagers who live there. So I think that there is a deliberate effort to attract uh, farmers to cultivate uh, these new villages. Um, whether Bonet goes back that far is unclear, but one of the synonyms of Bonet is the word uh, safra. Uh, the word, literally, uh, safra means desert. And it is the Arabic word for desert. This is the Arabic form of, the, of, of Sahara, or the Sahara Desert. Uh, it's not a Persian word. The Persians have a perfectly good word for desert, Biaban, which means literally the place without any water in it. Um, so in the 20th century, you found that you had some areas in Iran, the term for a labor team literally meant desert and was in the Arabic language. I mean, not in the present day, you find this uh, in some areas. Uh, and I think that, that this is an indicator that it goes back to this early period of Arab settlement. Yeah. So would these people just come in for the first like couple of years to settle the village and then leave, or would they No, they would stay. That's the reason you set up the labor team, is that you've, you've basically lured them in by giving them a share. Um, <clears throat> because they would have a guaranteed share as opposed to being landless peasants um, in other villages. So the, the question of landless peasants becomes a big issue in Iran in the 1950s during land reform because the, uh, uh, the agricultural economy um, left out quite a number of people who worked on the land and who simply became uh, casual labor that were not, uh, you know, they're not well supported. So I think this was soaking up the, the casual labor that exists, uh, that existed. There is a book by uh, Richard Eaton at University of Arizona uh, that deals with the spread of Islam in Northeast India, in the province of Bengal. And his thesis He's dealing with a much later time, a completely different area. But what he, I think, establishes pretty well is that in northeastern India, in Bengal, you had a region of the country that was mostly um, uh, forested or covered with a, a sort of a brushy uh, type of, uh, of natural um, cover. Uh, <coughs> Persian word is jangal, from which we get the word jungle. Uh, but this isn't jungle like, you know, Tarzan and uh, so forth. Um, the, the Muslim government in India would assign districts in Bengal to members of the court. Uh, and they would be remunerated by the taxes uh, that they would collect from the district to which they were assigned. But if you were assigned a district that was mostly forest, um, there's a question of how you derive revenue from it. So what Eaton shows is that in India, the court officials who had these land assignments 
hired land developers. And the land developers, some of them Hindus, some of them Muslims, would go into an area, recruit local labor, uh, clear the forest, and start planting rice so that uh, you have a, the growth of a rice economy in northeastern India. And what he demonstrates is that um, the people who became part of the villages uh, that grew the rice uh, became either Hindus or Muslims, depending on the religion of the entrepreneur who had been hired by the land holder uh, to, to develop the land. Uh, now, of course, you might think they were all Hindus to begin with, but actually in Bengal, uh, tribal religions that were not completely uh, absorbed into some sort of uh, concept of Hinduism were the most common form of religion. And the, um, uh, the tribal religions tended to be non-literate, uh, non um, oh, quite different from both uh, from Hinduism. And uh, he shows that among the people who come to live in the Muslim villages, which are the most common villages in this rice growing enterprise, uh, that they only gradually um, begin to approach uh, a normative style of Islam. For example, he can demonstrate, and there are other ways to demonstrate this, that you had a lot of people in India in this later period who believe that um, uh, God manifested himself to humans in various times, in various ways, and that uh, Muhammad is simply one of the manifestations of Vishnu. Uh, and he's like, in that sense, he's like Krishna or Rama or some other Hindu god. So that you get a kind of a, of a, of a period of time where people become nominally Muslims as they move into this new rice economy. And then over two or three generations, they begin to, uh, to lose the, uh, or dispense with the sort of modified sort of Islam and move closer and closer to a kind of, um, of standard uh, Islam. Of course, this area becomes uh, eventually uh, the country of Bangladesh, which is overwhelmingly Muslim, but a country for which prior to Eaton's work, it was never very clear how the Muslims had come into being because you never have a conquest of a formal sort. You never have a, uh, a conversion movement of a, uh, of a formal sort. Um, Eaton's book was quite a um, sensation when it came out and remains a kind of a model. But I think what was happening in Iran with respect to cotton is analogous to what happened in that later episode uh, with respect to rice. That is to say that the people who were drawn into these new villages established by Muslim entrepreneurs, whether they were Arabs or whether they were Iranian converts, become Muslims. Uh, they are expected to uh, to observe the religion uh, of the guy who owns the village. Um, 
villages tend to be uniform in faith. Uh, uh, this is fairly common uh, in other parts of the Middle East as well. Uh, when you villages aren't really large enough to have much diversity. Um, you know, either, everyone is a Orthodox Christian, or everyone is a Jew, or everyone is a uh, Muslim, or everyone is a Zoroastrian. Uh, say a country like Lebanon has this down to the present day. Uh, and there, there are sociological uh, theories that would sort of argue that in order to have diversity, you have to get over a certain um, threshold of size. Uh, and that if you only have 150 people in the village or 300 people in the village, uh, it's too small to have, uh, to have any significant uh, diversity. Um, that appears to fit in to some degree uh, with the early spread of Islam in Iraq. Uh, let me just talk about Iraq for a moment. Um, archaeological work that has been done in Iraq, um, most, the most famous work, of course, is finding tombs of old kings and so forth, but in more recent decades, uh, work has tended to focus on, on broad territorial surveys where you get, you know, 15 of your graduate students and you simply walk through the countryside looking at the ground and picking up uh, the bits of pottery that you find and trying to identify uh, where you had ancient inhabited sites and according to the pottery uh, shards that you find uh, you know, identifying when that was inhabited. What, what turned out is that along certain canals in Iraq um, you have an alternation of villages that have Sassanid pre-Islamic pottery and villages that have Islamic pottery. But you don't find both kinds in the same village. Now, you're using certain uh, pottery shapes or <coughs> pottery decoration as the diagnostic um, uh, tool here. And so when you say that you have a certain pottery uh, type that is Sassanid, that's pre-Islamic, it doesn't necessarily mean it was made uh, prior to Islam. What it means is that it is a style that goes back to the pre-Islamic period. Uh, that may have continued to be made um, well after the Arab conquest because there's no reason uh, at a village level for people who have changed their, uh, their types of pottery simply because you now had a caliph uh, ruling. So what it appears is that <coughs> these, these villages are twin and that um, as a village that follows Sassanid styles, declines, a village grows up near it that is closer to a Muslim style. And that people moved <coughs> uh, when they converted from one, uh, from one uh, site to another. 
So what I'm suggesting in Iran, and this is really a suggestion, I can't prove any of this, is that by setting up these new villages and drawing in a labor force that previously was probably non-Muslim, this becomes a mechanism for the spread of Islam that is not fundamentally an ideological mechanism, but rather has to do with residence patterns and occupational patterns. But of course, one of the things that you would assume is that the people in Muslim cotton-growing villages would wear cotton cloth. So the people were probably consuming what they grew. The reason this is so important is that it contributes to understanding how Iran became urbanized. I've mentioned before that in the Sassanid period, Parthian period, the cities of Iran seem to have had somewhere in the order of populations of 3,000 to 5,000. By the year 1000, you had some cities that were probably pushing 200,000. So there's an enormous increase in the percentage of the population that is living in cities. In order to build a city, there are certain things that you have to have. One of them is the money to actually construct the place. But another one is occupations for the people who live in the cities. Because what you expect is that people will leave the agricultural labor of the countryside and they will shift to having an urban-based labor of some sort. Now some of that would be gardening and the cities of Iran became known for gardens on the outskirts of the city that would grow fruits and vegetables. But it also means that you have to develop some sort of a manufacturing base. So that the cotton industry appears to provide the manufacturing base to employ people who are making their living by labor in the city as opposed to labor in the countryside. Unfortunately, we have virtually no information about the fabrication of cotton. All we know is that there was a tremendous amount of cotton that was woven and sold. And we know the names of certain fabrics that would be associated in some cases with special cities. But we know nothing about the weaving. We know nothing about the ginning of cotton, the cleaning of cotton, preparing it for spinning of cotton. This presumably was at a social stratum that was too low to leave any record. But it had to have been there. You simply cannot produce any fabric without a great deal of processing 
uh, going into it. Uh, but what is unclear is, what, is how much of that processing was based in cities and how much of it was based in villages in the countryside. Uh, generally, you assume that a large-scale uh, cloth industry is probably going to be urban-based, but there are different theories about, <coughs> about this. Uh, since this was mostly the production of plain cloth or of striped cloth, uh, you do not have the factor of tribal designs. Uh, that becomes very important in a much later period when carpets are the most noteworthy um, fabric exported from Iran. Uh, there you have uh, you know, weavers who are immersed in a certain social complex in a tribe and will reproduce uh, the patterns typical of their of their um, of their kinship group. So you can <coughs> let's say distinguish Turkoman carpets from Baluch carpets simply by looking at the design. But there doesn't appear to have been anything like that in this cotton industry. It seems like you were producing a standard product. Um, that is a uh, solid color, uh, mostly white, but could also be black, uh, or stripes. Uh, the caliphate um, supported this enterprise. Uh, I think I mentioned this already. It produced a kind of uh, cloth called tiraz. Uh, and why I say the caliphate produced, what I mean is that <coughs> there were factories <coughs> for making tiraz um, where all of the product of the factory was apparently bought by the central government, either in Baghdad or in uh, probably uh, through governors in more provincial areas. Tiraz was plain fabric that had uh, two or three inches of silk embroidery uh, or uh, silk weaving along the edge. <coughs> and that embroidery would be done in uh, Arabic calligraphy and uh, normally would include uh, the name of the caliph <coughs> and sometimes the date when it was made. Uh, very similar uh, to the practice that you find in Arabic coins, all of which have the name of the ruler and have the name of the date and the uh, have the date and the name of the place where the coin was minted. Uh, this tiraz fabric was used uh, by the caliphate to uh, to make robes of honor that would be distributed as gifts uh, by the government to office holders or other were the individuals. How much tiraz was produced, uh, really, there, there seems to be no way to uh, to, to estimate. Um, there are uh, many, many, many surviving fragments um, that, uh, unfortunately, what happens is that people preserved just the embroidery part and a little bit of cloth around it instead of the whole thing. But you really have to see it as primarily <coughs> producing the, the ground fabric and then embroidering it. 
Um, most of the surviving fragments come from Egypt because Egypt has the, uh, the best uh, conditions for the preservation of organic materials archaeologically. So most of the surviving uh, uh, fragments of Tiraz uh, have uh, linen as the ground cloth, plain white linen, rather than cotton. But, uh, but you don't have a large linen industry, so far as we can tell, um, east of Egypt. Uh, and so we have some of the surviving pieces are, um, have cotton as the, ground, uh, as the ground fabric. So here you had a, <coughs> a self-consciously religious government that is um, uh, teaching people that they should not wear silk brocade, that they should wear a uh, plain uh, cloth. Uh, and then uh, supporting this by having the, the, uh, honor, the honorary garments uh, distributed by the government um, be made from this uh, from this new cloth industry. Um, now, yeah. Was there sort of a contradiction that these honorary garments mentioned that it's kind of silk and gray on them? Um, it turns out there were several hadith that say it's prohibited to wear silk except for this much. And then let's say, and he held up three fingers. So you have hadith that are fabricated, presumably to uh, to fit what becomes a practice. Now, what it, what appears to be the truth of the matter is that rich people continued to wear silk brocade. Um, the fact that it was endorsed by the caliphate and taught by the Muslim um, religious figures doesn't mean that people actually gave up wearing really, really nice silk garments. Um, it's just that they didn't have the, the cachet uh, that went, uh, the religious cachet that went with these, um, uh, these plain cloth uh, garments. When the Abbasid Caliphate begins in 750, one of the characteristics that is talked about in numerous sources is that they wore black. Uh, but they didn't wear black silk brocade, they wore black cotton. Uh, so that the difference between uh, plain black or plain white uh, could be uh, politically significant. Um, but you don't get anyone uh, who is kind of publicizing the fact that they're wearing uh, silk brocade. By the, by the year 1000, silk brocade returns and, uh, and the, the, the cotton uh, moment in Iranian history uh, begins to pass away. So that later rulers, say after the year 1000, or even in the year 1000, uh, they're probably wearing silk brocade tunics of not that different from that of the Sassanid period. And in that later period, Tiraz comes to be a band of, of calligraphy that is worn on the upper arm uh, rather than the word for, for the entire 
piece of cloth. No. So at that time, were there hoodies fabricated that say it's okay to wear slippers? No, because there, you know, the, 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 the period for fabricating hadith comes to an end quite early. I'll, I'll talk about that in a minute. Um, yeah. You had the, the survey, uh, you know, you described the survey which showed uh, Sasanian villages transforming into Islamic villages mm -hmm. in Iraq itself. And earlier you discussed the fact that you don't count Stesiphon uh, as, as an Iranian city, it's, a, it's in Iraq. So I'm trying to... I'm okay, yeah, I, I, the reason I brought it up was to, was to support the idea that people shifted residents at a village level sure. at the time of conversion, not because of something they were dealing with Iran. Understood, but the question is, I guess I'm still not clear why you wouldn't account, why you wouldn't count Tessafon, which would have been one of the most popular cities in the world at the time, and which was the capital city, and, and which which resided in a countryside which obviously had a large Zoroastrian population. No, no, it didn't have a large Zoroastrian population. The, the countryside in Iraq was mostly, uh, was probably mostly Christian and Jewish and they didn't speak Persian. That's the reason I'm leaving them out. So I guess I'm trying to reconcile that with the, with the, uh, with the survey that shows Well, that, 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 the, the reason I'm, I'm, mentioning that, I'm mentioning that survey is to, it's the reason I mentioned the one in India as well, is to suggest the, what happens when you have religious change at the village level, regardless of whether it's Iranian or Iraqi or, or Indian, that uh, you get changes in residence patterns associated with it. So based on the survey, you're just going to take there were some villages in Iraq that were Zoroastrian, a small fraction? No, there were some that had Sassanid period, that had pre-Islamic pottery, and some that had uh, Islamic pottery. But the the pottery, you, it's very hard to identify pottery as being religious. I mean, there are certain pottery styles that are specific to certain religions. For example, the Mandaeans who lived in Iraq had a kind of, uh, of pottery, uh, they're called divination bowls. And when you find those, you know that that's Bandayan. But by and large, this, <coughs> this village level pottery was not ornamented and was identified more by the shape than by the particular images that that are carried, because most of it is non-glazed pottery. Um, in Iran, the tiraz industry uh, uh, represented, in, in my view, a, a, a new Muslim aesthetic, uh, where people were being distinguished visually from the um, from the non-Muslim uh, population. You also have in Iran, although there is a somewhat um, less distinctive uh, precursor in Iraq, it's a practice that goes from west to east, <coughs> you have a pottery style that imitates tiras. Um, this is uh, a type of pottery. This happens to be a reproduction. So, I'm <laughs> but this is a type of pottery that is now um, collected, uh, you know, by museums everywhere because it's a, one of the very, very uh, distinctive schools of early Islamic pottery. 
it's always plain white. Um, and you have calligraphy, Arabic calligraphy, around the edge. The, um, this appears to be the ceramic equivalent of tiras. In other words, that this is like having a cotton garment with uh, silk embroidery um, <coughs> in the edge. Uh, <clears throat> this calligraphy is almost uh, impossible to read. It's extremely difficult. There's a man now at the, the Met uh, named Abdullah Guchani who reads this stuff and, uh, and he has put out a book with uh, hundreds of examples in which he has, uh, has determined what these things mean. And what you find when you read the calligraphy, unlike Tiraz, where you have the name of the caliph and the date, uh, these are almost all um, uh, kind of bland folk expressions. You never have a quotation from the Quran. You never have a religious um, uh, statement. They'll you know, be things like a stitch in time saves nine or you know, a fool and his money are often parted or things like that. Um, they are uh, very pedestrian phrases. Uh, but since you can't read them, um, you know, it doesn't make a whole lot of difference what it says. There are different uh, ideas as to what plates like this uh, were used for. Uh, they primarily come from two cities. Uh, one is Nishapur in the northeast, and the other is Samarkand uh, in Transoxania. Uh, they're almost impossible to distinguish the styles from the two cities. Uh, it's one of the that's one of the interesting aspects is that you have two cities that aren't all that close together that are producing almost an identical um, uh, pottery. Um, some curators feel they can distinguish them, and um, I, think that, that I think they can, but it's very, very difficult. Uh, there's a question of when this pottery was made. Uh, because there is another type of pottery found particularly in Nishapur, but in um, other places as well, which is a much more local style, uh, as opposed to this, which is a, um, a trans-regional style, and which consists not of flat plates like this or shallow, bowl or shallow dishes, but of deep bowls. And the images on that pottery, which is usually uh, yellow, and uh, black um, and not white. You never have white showing up in this other style of pottery. Uh, the images are the same images that you have on the uh, silver and gold uh, uh, plate that was used by the old Sassanid aristocracy. In other words, on, on this competing uh, style of pottery, uh, you have a um, 
you have images of warriors on horseback, uh, people feasting, um, you know, uh, drinking from uh, from wine cups and so forth and so on. Uh, a lot of hunting scenes. So you have a, a a very sharp contrast between two styles of pottery, and the question uh, was which style came first. I remember when I got into this uh, question, I was convinced that what happened was that people continued in Iran to use have the Sassanid styles and they transferred them from gold and silver to pottery. And then as they became more pious and as time went on and you had more Muslims, then they devised uh, this sort of pottery. Um, but in fact, when you correlate archaeological uh, finds, it appears to be the other way around. In other words, this is an earlier pottery uh, than the pottery that imitates uh, Sassanid imagery. And in the same way that the that the tiraz uh, embroidered cloth uh, gives way by the year 1000 to a return of silk brocade, it appears that this sort of pottery also gave way to a return of Sassanid imagery uh, by the uh, by the end of the 10th century. Um, this. Uh, Uh, th this is based on um, where these things were found in, in certain excavations and the coins that were found in the same uh, in the same buildings and looking at changing percentages over time. Uh, okay, what this what this suggests is that cotton becomes important uh, in the early 800s as you have. Arabs and converts to Islam who are creating new villages and growing summer crops and deriving very high incomes from it. And that's a time when you still have comparatively few converts to Islam. But that by the uh, late 900s, virtually everyone has converted to Islam. And the sort of de facto taboo on Sassanid styles disappears. And you have a return both of the garments that were uh, patterned roughly on those of the Sassanid period and of the uh, hunting and feasting and fighting images that had shown up on the Sassanid, um, on the consumer items. Interestingly, there is one group of people who never return to wearing silk brocade. And they are the... Uh, the religious scholars. So that in Iran down to the present day, uh, the Ayatollahs and Hojatul Islam and so forth are wearing plain uh, cloth uh, while everyone else in the country has has abandoned that. So they stick, the people who, who pioneered the growing of the cotton and the advocacy of cotton as a hallmark of Islam continue to have their uh, their social um, marker uh, being uh, being wearing a certain type of of cloth uh, down to the present day. Uh, before I get into the question of why you have this 
this change in um, this reversion to pre-Islamic uh, styles. Uh, let me say something about how much money was made in all this. The history of Qom that lists all of the villages uh, from these uh, tax registers uh, includes uh, the tax rates as they change from the year 800 to the year 900. Uh, basically, in the year 800, if you grew wheat and barley, uh, you paid uh, 15 uh, silver coins for um, uh, for the uh, you know, per area. And the, the, you had a the, the, the unit the unit of area was not the same for every city, and so you see a little bit of difference. But in that uh, city of Qom, you paid 15 silver coins uh, for the standard unit of area, uh, and if you grew cotton, you paid 30 silver coins. So cotton was taxed at double the rate of wheat and barley, uh, and of course cotton had further expenses for the, uh, for the cleaning, uh, the spinning, and the weaving, and so on. So it appears that the profitability of cotton was uh, at least double, and probably more than double, the profitability of wheat and barley. Uh, that would have justified digging these expensive irrigation canals and um, uh, justified creating new villages and so forth. Uh, so cotton <coughs> is taxed at twice the, the rate of wheat and barley. And then as you watch the tax rates change over the following century, by the early 900s, cotton is still taxed at the level of 30 uh, silver coins uh, per unit of area. But the tax on wheat and barley steadily falls so that uh, by the early 900s, uh, you may be down to, uh, you know, from fall from 15 silver coins per unit uh, area for wheat and barley, you may fall to, uh, by 90% down to, say, one and a half silver coins. Uh, and this is, is another one of the puzzles. Uh, cotton retains its profitability um, but the government uh, is taxing wheat and barley at a steadily decreasing level. Uh, it's hard to, know, to, to prove the reason for this, but what appears to be the reason is that <clears throat> food production in Iran seems to have declined over this period of time uh, down into the 900s. And it declines for two reasons. First, food production declines because more and more acreage is being devoted to cotton. Um, or more and more rural labor is being devoted to cotton. Secondly, food production declines because the percentage of the population living in cities goes up. So the ratio between uh, rural labor force working on the farms 
and city dwellers who have to be provided with food, that ratio changes. And what I'm proposing here is that as the ratio changes, the government steadily reduces the tax on wheat and barley as an inducement to try and get people to grow more and more food crops because they're beginning to run into limitations on food supply. There is a later period in the 18th century when opium production in one part of Iran is so profitable that the government has to step in and say, you know, for every acre of opium you plant, you have to plant at least one acre of food grains because otherwise they'll run out of food. There's a problem in thinking about this because it seems to suggest a more sophisticated notion of the role of taxation in the economy than you would automatically attribute to the 9th and 10th centuries. But there is some corroborative argument to be made that food was becoming scarce or at least that the margin for supporting the cities was becoming more and more fragile. One of them is that in the 10 hundreds, but not very much before, you start to get a lot of famines and a lot of epidemic disease. What is a lot? Well, it's hard to say. You have fragmentary information given in chronicles that it's not systematic. But certainly there are some spectacular famines and spectacular epidemics in the 10 hundreds and not much before that. The other index has to do with the ratio between the size of a city and the number of people living in the countryside. This is used by medieval historians and it's called the urbanization index. Essentially what they try to do is to take a sizable district like northern France and try to determine what was the population of the 10 largest settled communities. Like Paris would be number one, then you rank them down to number 10 and you try and estimate the population. And there are some medieval records surviving that give you a pretty good ballpark notion of how big these communities were. Then you try to estimate the overall population of the region and look at the ratio between them. For medieval Europe, the urbanization index tends to be 8 to 10 percent. That is to say you might have 8 to 10 percent of the people in northern France or southern France or Germany or Britain who are living in the 10 largest communities. The places that are dramatically different are Tuscany in the beginnings of the Renaissance or Venice 
uh, or Flanders. These are areas that became uh, the sort of cutting edge of new <coughs> commercial activity. And there you can have the urbanization index going up to um, 20 to 25 percent. In other words, that you have a much, much uh, uh, more extensive urbanization in areas that become uh, manufacturing regions and exporting regions. Uh, in those cases, Flanders, Venice, and Tuscany, it is uh, apparent that the local food supply uh, had to be augmented by food brought in by sea. <clears throat> so that uh, Florence, for example, had the countryside of Florence did not produce enough food to support Florence during the Renaissance, but uh, the, the port of Tuscany, Livorno, um, would uh, have ships that would come in bringing grain from elsewhere to supplement the food supply. And the same would be true in these other areas that become heavily uh, urbanized. In Iran, uh, by the year 1000, the one area where I have been able to make a comparison is the area of Nishapur. And it appears that you have something on the order of uh, over 20% urbanization for northeastern Iran, which would suggest that um, the food supply should have been becoming fragile but northeastern Iran does not have any uh, access to seaports, and therefore uh, bringing in uh, grain to supplement uh, the local food supply would be more, uh, more costly. So in other words, I think that the urbanization <coughs> that took place was fueled largely by the profits from the cotton industry, that the cities um, became manufacturing and exporting centers, uh, and that over time, the urbanization of Iran exceeded the, um, or at least pushed toward the limit of the ability of the country to support, uh, to support such a heavily urban uh, population. Uh, in the, you know, after the year 1000, uh, a crash comes and Iran goes into a period of substantial agricultural uh, decline that's associated with the climate change at that time. Uh, but what, what happens in these cities uh, during, the, during their heyday, during the 800s or 900s, early 1000s, when they are at their peak, is, is extraordinary. This is where most of the scholarly and cultural accomplishment of early Islam takes place. Um, it isn't just religious scholars who are concentrated overwhelmingly in Iran, but it's also scientists, philosophers, uh, and uh, educated people of all sorts. This is the great flourishing uh, period of Iran. And it's also, I'll, I'll close on this, um, the period when you have the appearance of the Persian language written in Arabic script. Uh, the, this has always been one of the great puzzles about uh, the expansion of Islam, that from, uh, there are many different language areas that come to have 
that come under Arab rule in the process of conquest and that have separate local languages. So you have Aramaic in Syria and Iraq. You have Egyptian in Egypt. You have Berber languages in North Africa and so forth and so on. Only in Iran does the local language develop into a separate literary form written in the Arabic script. And this essentially solidifies the distinctiveness of Iran culturally within the entire Islamic world. So I'm going to talk about the language and about how it correlates to these other things and why I believe the Persian language adopted a new form in the early Islamic period. I'll talk about that next time. Okay. Thank you. 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 Thank you.